In my place condemned he stood. Biblical pattern of atonement. This is part seven. I view this as, I hope all the messages in the series are important. I view this as really uh, essential, central to everything that we're studying about the atonement. Here's the title I gave it. We've seen a lamb substituted for a man in the first six messages in this series. We've seen a lamb substituted for a man. Now, now we see a man substituted for a lamb. I've got a, I've got a bit of a lengthy passage of scripture, and I hope you will keep your mind awake and thinking the whole time about the sentences because we're going to be referring to a lot of thoughts out of this text. Isaiah 52, 13 to Isaiah 53, 6. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred. Beyond human semblance. What does that mean? And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Talk about his blood. He will sprinkle many nations. It's not just now for Jews or this group or that group. Nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. 53.1. Who has, who has believed what they heard from us? The prophet says, people are going to have a hard time digesting this message. That's what he's saying. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. A root out of dry ground. Like you, you wouldn't think. You wouldn't think this could happen. You wouldn't think this could grow. You wouldn't think this could develop, but it will, the prophet says. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. Despised. Think about that word. Not ignored. Despised. If there's, if there's one person I hate, it's that one. He was despised and rejected. There was an offer, but it was rejected by men. A man of sorrows, I guess. Acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide, hide their faces, he, he was, there it is, despised. We esteemed him not. And then these surprising, why would this person be surprised? Surely, for he has borne our griefs. Carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Listen to these words. Smitten by God. Not, not just the Jewish authorities or the Roman soldiers. God. Smitten by God. And afflicted. Five. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, peace with God. And with his stripes, we are healed. Six, 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. See substitution here? The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord. Second time he said it. Will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. That's the suffering servant. After that, he shall see his offspring. There will be fruit from his sacrifice. He shall prolong his days. The death won't be the end of this suffering servant, his resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He gets their iniquities, they get his righteousness. It's, it's just right there. 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide his spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death. It's not just, it's not just the father, he, the, the servant himself, he, his will is in this. He wants this. He has poured out his soul to death was numbered, numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors to this day. Do you see those strong words in verse 12? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil of the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So strong, I, I know that's a lot of text. So strong is the reference to substitutionary atonement. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors that, that these verses that I read, most of them, to this day, to this day, are deliberately left out in the public reading of scriptures in many, many synagogues. Frequently, in their lectionary readings of the prophets, rabbis will literally read up to Isaiah 53.11 and on the following Sabbath, pick up at Isaiah 54.1. It happens regularly. The explanation for the omission is usually that these verses are too easily misunderstood in the way they can lead people to picture a Messiah who dies and suffers for the sins of the people and actually overcomes death to make intercession for the people. And those rabbis are right. They're right. It's really easy, almost mandatory, to interpret these verses in exactly that way. In fact, if you reject that teaching, but all you can do is what they do do. You just leave those verses out. Go to, go to Greg Boyd's book, his big book on the atonement. Cross Vision is the name of the book. And at the back of the book, he lists all the scriptures that he deals with in the book. And you will find, I did it this morning, you will find as you go through the back of the book and look through the text, he will come up to Isaiah 52, all sorts of references, Isaiah 53 is left out. Not a comment. 
Not even so much as a denial, just totally left out in his study of the atonement. Well, it's all you can do. There's a special reading reason for including this text in our study this morning, because it marks, as I hinted at in the title, it marks a, a key shift in the unfolding divine revelation about the kind of work God would do in the atonement. Think about this progression. We, we studied for about four Sundays the Passover celebration in Exodus 12. You remember. They're leaving Egypt. The lamb has to be slain by everyone. The blood put on the doorpost. I won't go over the whole account. The wrath of God passes over the places where the Passover lamb was sacrificed, the bloodshed according to instruction. And all the people, Egyptians and Israelites, all of them were exposed to the wrath of God. The earlier plagues that had been sort of automatically selective in their target, but not so with the 10th plague. Everyone is in danger, Egyptian and Israelite alike. Why would that be? Well, for years, for years, God's people had been guilty of sin in Egypt. They didn't just live there. They worshiped the idols. Over and over, they had turned their back from the true God. And whether we like it or not, sin matters to God. So everyone needs atonement. That shed blood of that lamb, the lamb dies or the firstborn. doesn't matter the nationality of the household. Sin, all sin needs atonement. Everyone learns what God wants them to learn. Sin matters. Sin has to be atoned for. It can't just be ignored. You can't just say, I'm sorry. Things are different after people sin than before people sin. It's still true. Then we studied the ritual of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. Remember? Two goats, one slain, one released into the wilderness after the sins of the people are confessed over the head of that goat. One dies, a price of sin is paid. The wages of sin, death. One is driven into the wilderness. Sins are removed. Sins are carried away. You need two goats because no one, no one animal can demonstrate both truths. God's sin atoning work does two things in those two goats. It pays a price and it brings a deliverance. And that's what those things are supposed to picture with those animals. Now, you come to Isaiah, last part of 52, 53, and we turn an important corner in divine revelation because really, it's, it's not quite the first time, but explicitly it's the first time that the focus of the sacrifice shifts from animals to this person, this suffering servant. It's a man, not a bull, not a goat. It's a man. Striking when you think it through, because up to this point in the Old Testament account, the substitution has always been the removal, symbolically at least, removal of sin, the price paid for sin in, a, in the blood of a, a purse of a lamb, a goat, or a bull. 
And now this text in Isaiah moves away from these animals to this holy person that all those animals prefigured, pictured. God's, God's pulling back the curtain further and further as people come to understand concepts of divine wrath, substitution, atonement. As the people start to have their minds accustomed to one layer of truth, God opens the door, sets the scene for more revelation, a more complete picture. All of those slain animals and the celebrations of the Passover and the Day of Atonement, while powerless in themselves, they, they pointed to something beyond themselves. And our first complete prophetic glimpse of what they pointed to, well, it's in today's text. I hope, and I hope, you can make your mind alert to what's happening because it's huge. It's the reason you have, it's the reason you have 66 books instead of just 27 in your Bible. We need to know God's purpose in revealing things. Why didn't God just send Jesus to redeem sinners right after Adam and Eve sinned? He knew the mess we'd all be in. Couldn't Jesus have come and died immediately? I mean, surely his death would cover the sins of all who would be born after, just like it does 2,000 years after his crucifixion today. So why the long pause in redemptive history? And the answer to that question is God, in his wise and tender love, is doing something really specific. He knew this fallen world was not only wicked, but mentally resistant to the nature of divine rescue. He knew this concept of substitutionary atonement was not easily digested by proud, sinful people. And so in his mercy, he prepares us. He prepares us for the entry of this truth by prefiguring in the kinds of visible history, the lessons that we've been studying in this series. So, well, I don't, I don't think we would have had that problem, Pastor Don. I think Jesus could have come a long time ago. And I think the evidence points in the opposite direction. Because even after centuries of divine hints and clues and lessons, when Jesus did come, the suffering service did come in human flesh and nature, people still didn't grasp the reason for his coming. They still didn't get what was going on. The whole Jewish existence in the Old Testament and system of worship given them, it was designed to lead them to embrace the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And what did they do? They rejected him. So what do we learn about the atonement from the servant song in Isaiah. I mean, what does it contribute specifically to our understanding of the atonement and the wrath of a just God against our sin? Here's what I want to look at. Point number one. The suffering servant is painted in terms that are horrific rather than attractive. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were, were astonished 
at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. We're met, we're met immediately to notice the contrast between what the servant accomplishes, which seems so noble, and the way the servant looks, his appearance. In his accomplishments, it says he acts wisely, that's the word, high and lifted up, exalted, verse 13. All that's good. But in his appearance, he was 14, marred beyond human semblance. Don't slide too quickly over those last words. The prophet Isaiah is saying, you'd have to look twice at this servant to actually reinforce in your mind that he was an important person. The servant, this servant in his appearance, this servant is not the kind of person you'd walk up to and chat with at a party. This servant is the kind of thing, kind of person people would feel awkward around. You'd look and then you'd find somebody else to talk to. Broken. I mean, beyond human semblance. How, how, how marred in appearance do you have to be, ask yourself this, to be beyond human semblance? So immediately... We're confronted with the look, hear this, with the look of a body that has gone through something terribly disfiguring, right? This is the broken body of a grotesque crucifixion. True, highly exalted, lifted up, but it's all come at a terrible price. We, oh, so glibly, we open those silly little cellophane things and we read, this is my body which was broken. Not just wounded, just shattered. This is my body which is broken for you. And then, then we have this sparkling little detail, the servant's, Blood wasn't just spilled. It was said to 15, sprinkle many nations. And we're immediately, we're immediately deliberately taken back to that Passover lamb. The lamb wasn't just killed randomly. The blood was applied. There to my heart was the blood applied. We still sing about it. The blood applied to the house. Or think of the first of those two goats in Leviticus 16, the blood of the first goat. After the shed, it was sprinkled all over the holy place in the altar. Only the blood of this suffering servant isn't just for one particular tribe or race or occasion. It's global in its scope. The text almost shocks us by saying it will sprinkle nations. Not nation singular, nations. It's global. So that's the first thing, this marred 
Point number two, the servant is, he's despised and rejected in spite of his loving work. It's in 53, one to three. Who has believed what they heard from us? Remember that sentence. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was, he was despised. We esteemed him not. So the prophet braces us in advance. He braces us with this warning that the response of those for whom the suffering servant actually suffered, the response is so unbelievable. Look, they wouldn't believe it if they were told. Who has believed this? Nobody believes this. At first, it looks like no more than a repetition of what we've already been told about the appearance of this suffering servant. But there's something different here, something very different. Suddenly, the prophet brings the collective guilt of the people into the foreground. You'll notice these sudden appearances of we. No form or majesty, that we should look at him. No beauty, that we should desire him. We esteemed him not. We're all dragged in here. Pastor Don, are you, how do you know this is talking about Jesus? I want to show you something. John chapter 12. What did Jesus do with these verses from Isaiah 53? What did Jesus do with them? Jesus is the speaker here. And I, the I is Jesus, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus said these things, he departed. He hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, They still did not believe him. Who has believed our report? Now, here's the important part. So that the words spoken by who? The ones we just read. John says, that was Jesus. The people wouldn't believe him. He did all sorts of miracles right in front of their eyes. They saw him do supernatural stuff and they still wouldn't believe him. Why? Well, that the words of the prophet Isaiah, Lord, Who has believed what he heard from us? That's Isaiah's point. 
To this day, there's nothing rational in the rejection of Jesus. John's very careful to point out that it was after Jesus performed miracles. I talked about it. After Jesus performed miracles of power and grace, after he had shown his hand and done nothing but bless and heal the people, this was the time that they said, we don't believe you. We won't follow you. We prefer darkness to light. Are you doing that to this day? When Jesus speaks to your heart? How many times we hear the excuse that someone would believe if only, oh, if only they'd walked with Jesus and witnessed his love and grace. And the whole New Testament says, no way, you wouldn't. It would make one hoot of difference to you. The point here is Isaiah predicted all this. And John says, he quotes Isaiah. He carefully implicates us in the rejection of the Messiah. To this day, rejection of Jesus is spiritual. It's not intellectual. It's moral. There's darkness involved in rejecting Jesus' atoning work for my sins. And so Jesus reveals both the love and mercy of God and the blinding effects of human sin and guilt. There's divine brilliance here. In this way, God provides atonement for Don Horbin and reveals the need for atonement for Don Horbin. He loves darkness rather than light. This is a deep work. I can't fix it myself. Point number three. God lays our sins on the suffering servant. Four to six. There are so many references. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our, now it's dealing with sins, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see any kind of substitution happening in all those references? Please notice, the prophet unfolds more specifically exactly how a holy God deals with our sins. And this principle of substitution, it just lies at the heart of the whole explanation. And here's why this is important. There's a growing voice among some evangelicals that would see God's involvement in the crucifixion, but in a different way than the whole tone of Scripture sets it forth. A growing number of more progressive writers and bloggers see God sort of coming alongside us in love, sharing in what we all have in our human experience, rather than taking our place in substitution. The content of the atonement gets gets just slightly modified, softened a bit. The message becomes God knows what it's like to go through the pain of living in a troubled world. He can relate to your problems and mine. He knows what it's like to be despised and rejected. He knows the ache of being misunderstood. He knows loneliness and the cold that comes from being unloved. All of that's true. All of that's true. The Bible teaches it. We have this high priest. He's sympathetic 
because he's been tempted like we are in all points. We should be eternally grateful for that. But none of this loving, sympathetic heart of Jesus atones for sin, even if it understands my predicament. There's a crucial difference between understanding my sin and atoning for it. Christ's priestly ministry on my behalf is the result of his atoning work, not the source of it. No, there's just no way I took the time. I took the time to read those passages. There's, there's no way Isaiah is just describing God coming alongside us in our sin. Clearly, it's God taking my place, bearing the consequences of my sin. Do it again. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is not just a matter of the servant suffering with us. This is an exchange that takes place. He doesn't just join our suffering. He exchanges his peace for our chastisement, his healing for our stripes, his righteousness for our transgressions. It's it's just the clearest way Isaiah could picture the result of Christ's work. Look at it again, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. There's the problem. This is what we call sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This sets forth the need for the servant's suffering. He didn't go astray. We did. He isn't dying because of his sins, but because of my sins. That's what Isaiah means when he says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me tell you why that's important. A common argument used particularly by many Jewish interpreters, but others as well, they insist that the suffering servant isn't the man, the Messiah. The suffering servant is Israel. But that just misses the point entirely. Israel is suffering in captivity, Babylonian captivity at this time, precisely because she was sinful. She was immoral. She was idolatrous. She was wicked. She did turn from God. But Isaiah's suffering servant suffers because he wasn't sinful. He was the substitute for my sins. How do you know that, Pastor Don? Because that's what Jesus himself says. Look at John chapter 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe him. We talked about that. Here's where we ended before. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Now, they could not believe for again, Isaiah said... He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory 
and spoke of him. We're not guessing when we apply these things to Jesus. That's what the New Testament does. That's what John does. That's what Jesus does. At the Last Supper, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53 and says, this is what my death is all about. Point number four. The will of the Father and the will of the Son are one and the same in the atonement. I, I read these verses before. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There's what it's all about not just understanding what they're going through. He wants them accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide his spoil with the strong, because he he poured out his soul to death. That's the servant. He does it himself. It's his choice. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I know that's a long text. Whose will is it for the servant to die? Is it the father's or the son's? Isaiah is pretty careful to unfold the whole story of the atonement. Most of us cut our teeth knowing a verse like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God loves, God gives. But is that all the Bible says? This is Jesus. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. My pen isn't writing anymore. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to take it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. The father doesn't just love the world. The father deeply loves the son. And he loves the son because the son deeply loves the world and lays down his own life. There's this harmony of the Trinity. It is just this gross arrogance that talks about cosmic child abuse. Just totally ignoring the nature of the Trinity and the will of Christ and the will of the father being joined together. Shame on people for saying something like that. Only a full-blooded scriptural doctrine of the substitutionary, wrath-bearing, sin-removing atonement honors the spotless justice of a holy God and the wonderful, massive, loving heart of God the Son our Redeemer. Don't let anybody pull those two things apart. Do you know what we just did? I, I mean, not, I'm not taking credit for it, but what we just did with the atonement won't be done in one church in a thousand anymore. It's just, it's the anchor for everything 
we do here. It's, it's what makes us want to worship and pour out our hearts to Jesus. It's not some psychological uplift that he gives us. He poured out his soul unto death that we're accounted with the righteous. Praise God. Praise God forever. Thank you, Lord, for your word, the depth of it. It never was intended to be a light, breezy book. It holds the biggest truths in the universe. Feed us with it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.